Welcome to the Being Known podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Mm. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Pep. Great to be back together again. Man, so good. You know, I um, I am so enjoying your book. Mm. And we are covering the book this season. If you're just jumping in, jumping around on the podcast, uh, I recommend that you start at the beginning, that you buy the book, that you read the chapter before you listen or after. And um, I think it uh, really brings everything even more to life than the page alone. Hmm. Um, this is episode eight of season three, and we are going through, as I said, the book, The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. And we are in chapter eight, episode eight, which is gaze. And hmm. these chapters are based on Psalm 27.4, and the particular phrase from Psalm 27.4 is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And mm. this chapter starts off like, to me, like, like on fire, man. <laughs> I just this, this story that you start with in this chapter, mm. I, I, I was kind of on the edge of my seat, mm. you know, going through this story, listening to how, okay, I'll just tell you. So, so there's a, obviously Kurt changes all the names and some, you know, so, but there's a character that he's named Brendan and Brendan is a part of a confessional community. They all seemingly have been together for quite a long time. The uh, community is made up of men and women. And Brendan has been within the community, sort of the solid guy that has really made connections with everybody. And particularly he's kind of shown an example of a solid guy, a guy with a lot of integrity mm. Um, mm. to a lot of the women in particular in the group that have been hurt by men, mm-hmm. um, whether that's emotional or physical abuse or mm. um, infidelities or whatever, you know, those traumas were. Mm. And he has been representative that, you know, it could be better mm. that, mm. that, you know, to these people. And mm. he has to make a confession to the group mm. and he feels a lot of shame about this confession. And he's also very concerned because he is under, he understands his place in the group. He understands how he's Mm. been a positive, almost role, male role in the group. Mm. And Mm. he needs to confess to this group that Mm. he had an affair. Mm. Uh, He was in Europe. It, It lasted, I think for several months. And after he ended it, he found out that he had fathered a child Mm with this woman. Mm. Um, he had been through, went through, uh, you know, told his wife about it. They have worked on their relationships a lot, but in particular in this story, it was how much that him telling that story was going to impact all the people in mm. the room. Mm. And there was, you write that there was like 30, 40 seconds of silence. And in that silence, I can't imagine, mm. you know, what was going on in everybody's minds and what was going on in his, Mm. like, you know, this group was so important to him and, Mm. you know, was this going to be it? I Mm. mean, he was so Mm. shame. He had so much shame that he was carrying with him. Mm. And the first woman to speak out was a woman that her marriage ended in divorce because of her husband's infidelities. And, and so, you know, she's feeling this, Mm. but Mm. she immediately wants him to know that I don't want you to live in this shame. But she's also able to say, but this hurts like unbelievably and she's angry and she's hurt and she's, you know, all these things. Mm-hmm. And then Tom, another member of the group chimes in and he's like, 
he at first is like, I, you know, I forgive you, brother, kind of thing, mm-hmm. I think. And then he's like, like it's starting to turn in him because mm-hmm. he knows he hasn't been perfect in his life, but he he was holding up Brendan as an example of look. Look at what a man can be, and he and he's seeing Brendan is failing him, mm-hmm. and they're having this open discussion. It's just, <laughs> I mean, I was just riveted to this. Yeah, mm. right. Mm. Incredible, mm. incredible. Yeah. And I remember at the time that it's happening, uh, this is going on between. I mean, these are the three uh, main character. I mean, these are the vo- main voices that were, that were kind of like carrying this interaction. And of course, Courtney and I are like, we're looking at each other across the room and like, I'm like tightening my own seatbelt, right? Because I'm like, <laughs> holy right. cow, right? And like, and I, I've known this about Brandon, but like, at what point do we know, is he going to say these things and so forth? So we don't, we don't know. Right. But there's another woman in the group as well. Right. Right. Kind of like, at, just starts to like silently like cry. She's, she's starting to weep. No, not so silently. Cause like we could, we could sense it, See, but she's not saying anything. Because these other three are like speaking, right? And at you know, and I would say she's saying something. Oh, we just it, don't know exactly. what it is yet. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly yeah. right. Her she tears, is saying a lot, right? And as we like to say in the business, our our tears. Uh, we may have said this on our gatherings before. Uh, the whole notion that that we read in the scriptures that God is going to bottle every single one of our tears. How much effort it would take to actually bottle somebody's tears? Like what it was like to have somebody put a bottle up under your eye, like and, and to capture, right. like how much, how how care, like how much effort would be required to do this? That we're, you know, th- that this is the God that we serve that says that our tears really are the expressions of our soul. There, our tears are invaluable. How many of us are embarrassed to weep in public? And we would say, no, your tears are the expression of your heart that somehow has been locked in some kind of a vault and there's a crack in the door and your tears are running for daylight. Yeah. And this woman starts to weep, saying something, the nature of which we don't yet know. And it's only as this conversation progresses that she finally, at some point, the tears stop when Brendan expresses his grief and his apology. And she then goes on to talk about how she who had lived in a house where her father was really quite brutal and never apologized for a thing. She was struck by Brendan's heartfelt grief and apology and penance and of course, one might have imagined that she could have said any number of things. This is my life, this is all the things, but like that she said, I've never ever heard a man apologize to a woman for anything. And the fact that this is happening in the room is changing mm-hmm. her experience where we have this rather monumental rupture that's taking place between members in the group in which, as we're talking about today, in which Brendan is really allowing people to gaze right upon his wounds wounds that he's really ashamed of that in interestingly enough right he's worked these things out more thoroughly with his wife 
But there's no other place in public where, I mean, in any kind of public sphere of this, even of a, of a protected confidential public sphere, who knows this? Yeah, you know, it's, that's a, and that in itself is interesting because you would think if he was able to work it out with his wife that he would be able to let go of a lot of the shame, but it was, it's deeply embedded. Right. Well, how many yeah. of us have things that are so shaming? And because they really, I mean, they, because they really are deeply painful that we might be able to work it out with the one person who, with, you know, that's been most affected by it. But like the whole notion of just, you know, telling anybody else means that I have to like tell about it. I have to talk about it. It means I'm going to revisit that same room. Yeah. And this is what evil counts on, right? Evil counts on our limiting. Now it doesn't like sharing our shame with others is not something about which we need to be cavalier. Exactly. Right? This is not like the public confessions that we get from all kinds of people on Facebook and the internet, and right. uh, which all, of course, is uh, appears to be much more of a marketing ploy than it appears to be anything else. We're really talking about people who are longing for genuine change, and those people are the ones who are most in touch with how touching this shame is like touching the third rail, right? Yes, my wife knows, but for this group to know, this group especially who now I perceive has a certain perception of me that is now headed for the sewer. Right, and and that gaze that's on them, that's looking at the brutal, that's looking at the shame, the disappointment, the anger, that is where some of the most beautiful things happen. It... It really is, and this is where I think, uh, you know, I think in many respects uh, up to this point uh, in the book, I, I think for me as I wrote the, as I was writing it, and, you know, coming to this, like this becomes kind of like the, the turn in the book. Hmm. You know, because I'm aware that you and I have talked about things with each other about our lives that we aren't proud of. And, I, you know, I still see I still see the moment in the restaurant in Colorado. Where you welcomed my story into the room. After which I could say, this is a man with whom I dwell because this is a man who has gazed upon my wound and he's still here at the table. And, you know, there's a temptation of like, well, when's he going to leave? Well, maybe not right now. Maybe it'll be later. And, you know, it's years later and you're still in the room. You know, we often talk about our shame. Uh, I, I don't remember from time to time what things I've said here and what things I haven't. So <laughs> my mind is a sieve. We talk about how, uh, we, uh, so at the risk of repeating this, uh, if we were to be standing on a sidewalk and look up and finding, find that we're being approached by a little red wagon at three miles an hour, which is a walking pace speed, we could just simply put our foot out and stop it with no trouble. If we were standing on a railroad track and we were being approached by a locomotive at three miles an hour, we couldn't stop it. But it's not because of its speed. It's because of its mass. Mm. And shame is like a locomotive. 
it doesn't even have to be moving that fast, but we can't stop it. What we need is a bigger train. And our community becomes the bigger train. Hmm. And so Brandon can work things out with his wife, but his shame isn't going to stop because it's a locomotive. And the degree of fear that he carried into that conversation was commensurate with the awareness that he needed a bigger train. And I need a bigger train. And you're part of the train for me. And that whole notion of gazing is, as we like to say, we're not glancing. Right. It's to look with loving kindness for an extended period of time. And even in that, I just want to say, and even in that, you know, there can be a level of discomfort. Yeah. Um, you know? Oh, my gosh. It's like you're you're not used, you know, you want to look away. You want to, right? You want to blink. You right. want to. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, we could be in, these, in this community. And, you know, of course, like I said, Courtney and I, like we've been doing this now for many years. And right. it, like there, there are still moments where I'm like. You know, I want to talk. She, like we want to, we want to talk. Like we want to talk. We want to diffuse this. We want to like. Uh, I don't like this. And and uh, and other members, like other members, want to talk. Right? They want to. They want to fix it because what we're really trying to do is we're trying to regulate our distress. But to gaze is to look long enough, looking for beauty to come forth. We've, we often talk about how there are certain artifacts of beauty, whether it's in nature or in art or in worship or in, you know, a range of different things uh, that, you know, uh, we, we don't find it difficult to gaze upon a beautiful sunset. And in fact, we, we want to stop it so that we can gaze forever, Right. That's not mm-hmm. difficult for us to do, to just simply gaze upon things that are naturally compelling. It's one thing for us to do that. It's another thing altogether different for Brendan to allow others to gaze upon him for like that, that, that like you said, that 30 to 40 seconds where nobody's saying anything. Right. And he's like, <laughs> is, the, is, is the floor going to swallow me in just a moment? Right. And, and it's also true then that because we don't have much practice actually gazing upon beauty as a practice anyway, we then don't have the practice of looking for it where it does exist, but it's not easy to see, let alone the most difficult thing to do to look for it and then gaze upon it in the places that we find to be most ugly, places we hate the most, places that we just assume others would find to be so off-putting. And Brendan quite courageously gave everyone an opportunity to have an experience of gazing upon his revisiting, you know, the woman who spoke first and talked about her husband's infidelity and how this is, because that means that she's inviting others once again to gaze upon her story. And she doesn't want to look at her story any more than, than Brendan wants to look at his. But this notion that everyone now is turning their gaze upon her, but staying in the room. And then to have the other voices, not least of which the woman who says, I've never seen anything more beautiful than to have this man right. repair this. 
Right. Of course, that would be a comment that nobody would see coming. The story is told of the man who became known as the cellist of Sarajevo, veteran Smailovic, yeah. who for 22 days between May and June in the 1990s, during the siege of Sarajevo, in the wake of a mortar round that killed 22 people standing in a bread line, he was a cellist with the Philharmonic Orchestra of Sarajevo, and he took his cello into the crater where the bomb had fallen. He took his cello into the crater and started to play. This one particular adagio. And every day, for 22 straight days, he's in, you know, the crosshairs of sniper fire. And, you know, his, his work didn't stop the shelling. The shelling continued. But for 22 days, the world stopped and they didn't stop because NATO came up with a new plan. They didn't stop because somebody came on with bigger guns. They came in because beauty was being put on display in the middle of what was just so god-awful. And so for us to look upon beauty in the middle of trauma to gaze upon this has this echo of Genesis 1, this notion that we read in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, that the world was chaotic, formless, void. The Spirit of God swept over the deep, and God waded into this chaos and said, let there be. And when he's done with day one and day two and day three and day four, the text reads, and God saw that it was good. And the word good in the Hebrew is easily interchangeable with the word beautiful. Hmm. And in the same way that it is beautiful there, we might say that when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, he means I'm the beautiful shepherd. This notion that when God saw what he has made was beautiful is also important, not just in that he has made something and now he looks upon it from a distance to see what he's done and says, this is beautiful. That's true, but it's not only that. There is this sense in which the beauty that he sees emerges as a function of him looking upon it. And that it is our chaos, it is my trauma, that is to be turned into beauty by virtue of me allowing you to gaze upon it. It is not something that I create on my own. It is co-created between me and you, between Brendan and Sarah and others that are in the room that are looking upon Brendan's trauma and calling beauty forth in the middle of this chaos. And we would say that this is exactly what God does on Good Friday. That God joins us in our chaos. And in the very space where we couldn't, for the life of us, imagine anything being beautiful about crucifixion, 
God can look upon it very, very differently. Michelangelo sculpted what has become one of the most famous pieces of marble sculpture in the world, a piece called the Pieta. All 6,000 pounds of it that rests in St. Peter's Basilica, and for many of you who are familiar with it, many of you who aren't, it's the sculptured form of Mary holding Jesus after the crucifixion. It's the embodiment of a mother with her boy. And it's not a piece that you glance at. It's a piece that you gaze upon, and when you do, it changes you. You feel the caverns of your own unfinished traumatic business being brought right to the surface, longing to be held the same way that Jesus is being held. And you see that she's willing to gaze. She's willing to be present. She's willing to hold him in the same way that that community was holding Brendan. As hard as it was to do. We read in Matthew 27 this famous line where Jesus utters the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This notion of Jesus appealing to a God that it would appear isn't to gaze upon him at all anymore, that he's left. But if we're careful and recognize that Matthew's gospel was a gospel written to Jews, and many places in his gospel, he would use the rabbinic tradition of quoting a certain passage from a certain portion of scripture in the Old Testament from the Jewish texts, Isaiah, Malachi, others, in which he wouldn't quote the entire passage. He would just quote a line from it, and everyone who would read it would know what he's talking about. And here we know that Jesus isn't just quoting one line from one psalm. Jesus is quoting. Jesus is representing the entire 22nd psalm. And Psalm 22 has... 36 verses in it, 36, 38 verses, I think, in it. And the first half of the psalm are verses of lament, verses of anguish, verses of abandonment. And what we read in Matthew's gospel are just the leading words of that psalm, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we easily think that what we're reading is Jesus lamenting that God has taken his gaze away from him. But that would not be a full reading of the gospel or of the psalm because when we get to verse 19 in Psalm 22, everything turns. You can imagine the first wave of what it felt like in the room when Brendan makes his announcement. That's Psalm 22.1, the first verse. But that's not where it ends. We get to verse 19 and everything turns. When you dwell long enough and you allow others to gaze and you're willing to gaze, we find that beauty starts to emerge from the very places that we would least expect it. Because when you get to the last half of the Psalm 22, it becomes a Psalm of victory, a Psalm of presence, a Psalm of vindication, a Psalm of confidence. Later, when we get to Matthew 26 earlier when before later in, in what I mean by later is this, another item this this story when Jesus is being taken by the armed guards in the garden and Peter whacks off the ear of the high priest's servant and Jesus says 
Do you not know? Put away your sword. Do you not know that should I want to, I could call 12 legions of angels. They would come. And if you can imagine on Good Friday, Jesus knowing that there are 12 legions of angels at the ready that he can see that no one else sees. Not unlike Elijah and his servant when Jerusalem was about to be taken and Elijah asked God to show his servant what he can't see. And Elijah and, and, and the servant sees the armies of the Lord surrounding the city. And can you imagine Jesus on Good Friday and he looks around and he sees 12 legions gazing. And the captain saying, you give us the word. And we're coming. But Jesus allows the gazing to continue. And then he says to John, behold thy mother. Right? His mother and his best friend continue to gaze. Can you imagine? It just doesn't stop. Because we sense that Jesus could see into a realm that no one else could see. And this is what had happened in this group, that there was enough trust on Brendan's part that he could trust that he could peer just enough into a realm that he was trusting would be waiting for him, that he was willing to take the step of allowing others to gaze upon him. This gaze that activates neuroplastic change, grows our resilience. This gaze that changes not just me, but those who are doing the gazing upon me. I'm reminded in Luke 22, where we read that after Jesus' inquisition with the Sanhedrin, he had predicted, of course, to Peter that he was going to be denying him. And Peter said, no way. And in Luke's gospel, we read that afterwards, the cock crows three times after Peter had denied him for the th cock crows after Peter denied him the third time. And the text reads that as Jesus was brought out, Jesus looked straight at Peter. And there's a famous painting by Heinrich that displays Jesus coming out of the courtyard. You can barely see his look. You can't really quite see it exactly, but you see Peter turning away in shame. And it's easy for us to imagine that when we read the text that Jesus looks straight at Peter, it's easy for us to imagine what that would might, might be. If it were me, I'm like, I, I don't even want to imagine what that would look like. That, that gaze of disappointment, that gaze of sadness and I told you so and so forth. But what if that's not the gaze? What if the gaze is one of loving kindness? What if the gaze is one that really says to Peter, we both know what we both know that I said would happen. And you need to know. My father has this. And I'll see you in three days. And I think about that Trinitarian notion of the Holy Trinity. We talk about this in our in these confessional communities that we live with the assumption, we work with the assumption that the Trinity is at work present and on the loose in this group, and that we are doing this work in the presence of this audience that is actively engaged with us, and that they don't leave the room, and they allow for the gaze to take place 
such that beauty might emerge not least in the places that we are most pleased to announce it, but particularly in the places that we find most difficult to be exposed. You know, we've talked about uh, in past conversation about that experience, experiencing Jesus in, through one another, mm. you know, through through the gaze, mm. right? I mean, through the uh, the times where, you know, we've confessed to one another things mm. and received this back. Mm. And to me, it is such a tangible experience, you know, because for, for a lot of us, it is hard to, without that, it's hard to imagine Jesus' gaze. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I would say, you know, all, all this in many respects goes right back to the beginning of secure attachment with a newborn. The newborn comes into the world and he or she is looking for mom's gaze. Yeah. And it is mom's gaze upon that newborn, not just when the newborn is being what we want them to be, smiling and attuned and comfortable in their own new little body, but even when they are colicky, even when they've even when they're sick, even when they have, you know, the messy diaper and the sleepless nights and all the things that is our gaze upon them, even in their distress, even with them showing us everything that there is that they can show us that are driving us crazy. You should say it's a good thing they're cute. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Both of my kids are in my house today. When we're done with this recording, I'm going to go tell them that they're lucky that they were cute. <laughs> they're, they were they were lucky that they were cute when they were in my house when they were newborns. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I this this notion that we are the the way that we have been made right from the get go, coming right out of the right out of the womb, to be gazed upon in order for that gaze to call forth our beauty, even in the face of the parts of our lives where ruptures take place, where hard things are happening. And it's very difficult for me to imagine a gaze from Jesus that would be kind in the face of my own brokenness if I don't have any other thing to go on, if I don't have a human experience to go on. We like to say that, right, reminding you from a neurobiology perspective that we operate bottom to top and right to left, this sense that my right hemisphere has to take in. I have to sense, and then I can make sense of what I sense. And it is yeah. in your voice and in your eye line and all, all those all those kinds of things that are taking place that enable me to have the viscerally felt sense of, oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm okay, despite having just revealed to you what I revealed to you. And then be able to name what it is that I want in the wake of that in the wake of that gaze that we will be coming to uh, in, our next, uh, in our next time together. But this notion that gazing, that we allow this to happen, we want others to do it for us, we do it for them, is transformative. You know, one of the, one of the experiments, experiments I say, <laughs> I don't know if that's, if that's, if that's a good word, one, one of the tactics that we use when we're doing marriage therapy is this uh, gazing exercise. Uh, you find couples that are not 
doing well together. They're, they may not, they may be mad at each other. They, they, things are not easy. You're okay. And we will uh, have them sit essentially knee to knee, looking at each other, very close to each other, knees to knees. And then I will say for the next five minutes, I want you to look with loving kindness into each other's eyes. Now, I'm not looking for you to stare at each other. You can't, you know, you can, you can feel free to blink and so forth and so on. But I, I want you to gaze with loving kindness upon each other. This is not something these people want to do. Right. Like, they will say, well, well, that wouldn't be very honest. I, you know, I have all kinds of other things. To which I, to which I would say, so did you put deodorant on today? <laughs> That's not really very honest either. Because we all know you stink. I mean, come on. <laughs> Do the practice. Come on. Do the experiment. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I... I think I'm going to use that now. I mean, we're going to use for that, it. right? I'm going to use Consider it. I'm going to, it cite, I'm going to cite you. I'm going to. I'm going to cite you. Right? <laughs> okay. I'm going to. I'm Fair going to, enough. I'm going to place attributes where they where they properly go. <laughs> but it is a wild thing to watch this happen, right? Because they'll first they start out with you know they've got five minutes and like I don't I I'm guessing that not many of our listeners have ever had the experience or practice. I wonder if you've ever had to do this like as part of your acting training. Yeah, for sure. A lot of exercises like this, yeah. That is just like, yeah. it's unbearable to begin. And, unbearable. All right, and these right. are two people who, like, typically, like... Are mad at each are other. Are mad at each other, <laughs> but they also have sex with each other, right? These are people who, like, have been intimate, but, like... Right. When's the right. last time we've actually looked at each other for, like, 30 seconds, let alone five minutes? And so the first 90 seconds or so are really unbearable. They're really difficult for them. They're like trying to, you can see they're fidgeting. They're, they're even, they, they, they turn their, they're, yeah, they're looking, but they're turning their face to the side. It's trying to kind of lock in and get comfortable. So we'll help them. We'll say, I want you to take a couple of deep breaths. When you start to feel fidgety, take a couple of deep breaths and so forth. And then we'll say, okay, I just want you to wait as you're able, just breathe and look with loving kindness. In other words, you're, you're doing something. You're not like just looking with loving kindness because that's what I see. I'm doing this on purpose. And it is almost to a couple. By the time we get to five minutes, they don't want to stop. They don't want to stop. We coach them in advance. We say, like, we know that things are going to come into your head. You're going to be reminded of why you're angry at each other. We, all, all the things they're going to, that's going to want to interrupt this gaze. But we want you to practice loving kindness even in the face of all this other stuff, because we want you to have an embodied experience of what it means for you to be gazed upon in this way and notice what is your own experience of what happens to you when this is what you are receiving from the other who you imagine is your enemy at this point. And in many respects, this is what we're inviting people to do. We are inviting people to practice gazing and be gazed upon in the way Jesus gazed upon his mother, upon the disciple John, in which Jesus was gazed upon himself in his worst moment. And to do so with the awareness that Jesus was confident that something was coming that evil didn't see and in no way could be prepared for. And often neither are we. We don't see it coming. But in these communities, we find that 
the Holy Spirit enables people with practice, that notion of dwelling, dwelling, gazing, leads then to the next thing that we can do, which is to begin to inquire and ask the questions that really begin to expand our imaginations even further and watch beauty be put on display, especially out of the very detritus of our lives that we couldn't imagine beauty ever emerging from. Hmm. This was great, Kurt. Mm. I appreciate that I get to be the recipient of mm. your gaze. Mm. I mean, mm. Um, mm. you know, when we get to spend time together like this, even though we're not in person, it's yeah. great that we can see each other. Yep. Yep. And um, I will honestly, you know, take you and Amy with me today mm. and, right back and at you. think about think about that gaze. Yeah, right back yeah. at you. Um, Thank you. And speaking of Amy, she's uh, a little under the weather today, so those of you who are watching on YouTube, uh, we will not have a bonus segment here, but hopefully she'll be back next week. Very yeah. good. And that's, yeah. Yeah. Man, love you Kurt, so much. Thank you. You too. It's always a pleasure. Always a joy. Somehow, I got to get in the same room with you and Amy as soon as I can. So. Yes. We got to make that happen. Yeah. 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 All right. Love you. Love you. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.